0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Coming up later in the hour, a look back at some of our favorite science books of 2021. But first, something that may seem familiar this time of the year. What is it? You open up a holiday card and outpours a little unexpected surprise. Glitter. And that glitter will seemingly be with us forever. Hugging your sweater, covering the floor. But glitter doesn't just stop there. It washes down the drain, travels into the sewage system and the waterways. And since it's made from microplastics, you know it's never going away. So as it turns out, all that glitters is not gold or even biodegradable. But what if you could make glitter that was biodegradable? Sylvia Vignolini, professor of chemistry at the University of Cambridge, has done that. Developed eco-friendly glitter made out of plants Professor Vignolini, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for the invite. Tell us why exactly glitter is so bad for the environment.
1: The glitter itself is a composite material. So you have a layer of metal, and then on top of it, the very cheap one, you have a layer of plastic, that is where you embed some some pigmentation. And they combine the fat of this metal layer with this uh, top layer that has this pigmentation gives you this glittery effect, this metallic effect. This is a typical example of a macroplastic because the size are on the size of a few tens of microns, depending on what type of glitter you consider. But the most, uh, the, the one that are most available and the one most widespread often have this type of uh, this type of problema.
0: You know, there is a lot of glitter that's marketed as biodegradable or eco glitter. What's in that stuff?
1: This is actually a little bit better because instead of having a plastic like a like that is not degradable, you you might find some bioplastics, but you still have the problem of this uh, multiple layering. So you have still a material that is a composite, and therefore you have challenges in recycling, especially if you don't recycle it properly.
0: It'd be hard to recycle glitter, but if you, even if you wanted to, you can't do it.
1: Yes, because it ends up on everywhere.
0: <laughs> and what about mica? It's it's also sparkly and it's in a lot of makeup and other beauty products. Is that better for the environment?
1: Mica is not necessarily bad itself. You know, the only problem of mica is the way that is resourced. So that if you have a ethically resourced mica, because often it's, it's, they exploit child labor to produce mica. But obviously like company and they are becoming more and more aware. So they try to resource it in a, in more, uh, you know, in ethical ways, but they still have a little bit, the the, the problem that is a highly energy intensive uh, process because you really need to make really small flakes out of, uh, of rocks at the end, like of inorganic materials. But it's based on mica, but it's not only mica, yes. So mica is one of the layer of the component. On top of the mica, you might have other materials and then often you also have plastics, polymers.
0: Who thought that glitter was so complex to make?
1: In order to understand why it's complex to make them, it's important to understand the phenomenon that is behind the, what makes glitter glittery. So um, generally when you have a coloration, a color that like the color that you use to to paint a wall or to color your clothes, these are traditional pigments, and this pigment, uh, essentially, the, the coloration, the appearance depends on the chemical characteristic of the material that you have, but the color doesn't change in function of the angle. So in order to have this uh, metallic sparkling effect, you can do it in two ways. One is to use a metal, because metals, they are shiny. And the way that they reflect light with respect to pigment, it's, it's really different. That's why also you can have a mirror. They, they behave as a mirror metals. Another way is what you call structural colors. They don't come from the interaction of the light with the chemical characteristic of the material, but with the physical characteristic of the material.
0: That's, that's like butterfly wings, things like that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So you need to have a, a structure on the order of a few hundreds of nanometers, that interact with the light with a phenomenon that is called interference. And this gives rise to this uh, vivid uh, color that are really metallic and really shiny.
0: So let's talk about your achievement now. Given the background of all of this glitter, you've made a new type of glitter that avoids some of those environmental issues using cellulose from wood pulp. What made you think to try and make glitter from plants?
1: Okay. So we saw in nature that cellulose can be used to make colors. That was really our my inspiration when I started to work on this system, uh, if you want, almost uh, 10 years ago. In fact, we discovered that there are several types of plants that can use the cellulose fiber that are the same fiber that we, that we talk about, that we ha- you have a diet that is rich of fibers. So we have observed in nature this type of coloring in several types of plants, fruits, but also leaves. So, and it's a really common architecture and it's a trick that plants use to make color when they cannot make it with pigmentation. So we thought, okay, plants can do it. Maybe we can try it ourselves <laughs> as well.
0: So, so how did you extract the cellulose and make it into glitter?
1: So what, what we use from the cellulose is from wood pulp or any type of plants biomass that can then be also like, we also extracted from uh, grape skin that it's... a uh, from the waste from wine industry, <laughs> or we can also extract it from cotton linters that are the piece of cotton that comes from uh, that are cannot be interwoven into yarn. And all these small bits and pieces of cellulose, you can extract what you call the crystalline part. So we call them it's a type of material that we call cellulose nanocrystal. And uh, nicely enough, when you use this material and you and you you put them in water. In the right condition, they can behave as so-called liquid crystals. So the same type of chemical that you have in computer display to make uh, to make the display, these particles they have a similar behavior. So they can form layer structured that are also similar to what you see in the plants that can interact with light to create this coloration. So we so at the end we simply use this this part of the cellulose and exploit this principle that is a spontaneous process that the material does. So it's called self-assembly.
0: Hmm. But it, is it as sparkly as the real stuff, as the synthetic?
1: Yes, it is really sparkly because it's um, it's similar. The concept is the same of the one that you see in the butterfly wing or in the feathers of a peacock. Now the color doesn't depend on the material but depends on the physical structure. As soon as you are able to physically structure the material in the right way, independently from the material that you use, the chemical composition, you can get really bright color.
0: So what needs to happen before this glitter goes from your lab onto my shelf?
1: Well, wow, that's lots needs to happen. So we, we got lots of interest also from the, from the media and then obviously many companies contacted us. Our technology, if you want, is based on this self-assembly. And, uh, and this self-assembly mechanism especially using biomaterial, is not really well developed in industry as a process because it has some disadvantages. It is slow with respect to conventional manufacturing methods that are used now to make pigment and glitter. It's a bit slower. And therefore, as a technology, it's a little bit disruptive with with respect to what is present today. So you first need to convince (laughs) the the company, the manufacturing company, that it's actually a process that it's economically viable because at the end of the day, it's sad to say, but I don't know how many people would be happy to pay lots of money for buying glitter that is more sustainable.
0: Yeah, so you have to bring the price down and when you make it.
1: Exactly. You need to make the material that is uh, compelling also from a point of view of economic point of view and the raw material is is not expensive because it's cellulose itself, and actually the fact that you can get it from waste it makes it even more attractive. But the processing at the moment is expensive, and in order to you know in order to really being able to sell it on a commercial level, there is a lot of more uh, technical challenges that needs to be addressed in in, in question of of making it uh, of produ- producing it on a really large scale.
0: Well, tonight I'm going to see a lot of confetti and streamers on New Year's Eve coming down in Times Square and other places and and around the world. Is it possible to make all this stuff that's going to be raining down biodegradable, also just like your glitter material?
1: Yeah, it is possible. The question is, like again, it's question of will and question of how much uh, people that want to also to invest and they are ready to. To change this technology for something that is a little bit more sustainable. Obviously, you know, it's always I think it's also always important to, re- to remember that uh, you are always creating an impact with what you you dispersed around. Yes? So you produce more waste. It's true that it's even if it's a biodegradable, it's a it's better, but it's still gonna take some time to, to degrade. Yes, and it's still gonna probably affect the, envi- the environment that you have around. So, even if you have a material that is uh, essentially inert, like cellulose, if you imagine to and it's and it's degraded by many different microorganisms, if you accumulate large amount, a large mass of one specific material in a spe- in a place, you might alterate the ecosystem of that specific. Uh, of that specific area, and you will have an environmental impact. So my suggestion is that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't live a life of uh, where we we restrain ourselves in everything, but we should also be a little bit more aware that everything that we do is impacting our environment and we should try to limit to what is really necessary and trying to, you know, trying to be more, uh, or, you know, to use it, but in special occasion, and not be everything that is a consumer that then it goes in the bin. And, and because it's written bio, we are, we are happy with it, and we, we don't think about it anymore.
0: Well, Dr. Vignolini, we wish you great success, and hopefully in next New Year's Eve we'll be able to see biodegradable confetti, glitter, streamers, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for taking time to be with us today.
1: Thank you. Have a nice evening.
0: We're going to take a break. And when we come back, did you get a bookstore gift certificate? Well, we'll be reviewing some of the best science books of the year, so get ready to write down some great titles. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. As the gift-giving season teeters to a close, I'm very much hoping you ended up with some money to spend at your local bookstore. Sure, gift certificates sometimes get a bad rap. Some people feel they're, what, less thoughtful, but it's really nice to have that kid-in-a-candy-store sense of possibility by choosing some books for yourself. And in case you're having trouble deciding which ones, we have some suggestions for you. My guests have also been doing a lot of reading this year, and today we'll share our favorite science books of 2021. So bookworms, grab your shopping list and your library card and huddle up. Here to talk books with me are my guests, Stephanie Sandala, associate editor with Library Journal. She joins us. And Valerie Thompson, a senior editor covering books at Science Magazine. Hi, welcome uh, both of you to Science Friday. Welcome back.
2: Thanks so much, Ira. Thank you for having us again, Ira.
0: Nice to have you. And just a reminder that everything we're talking about will also be on our website. You can check out the full list at sciencefriday.com slash books. Okay, let's let's go right to uh, my pick. I'm going to go ahead and start with my favorite, okay, or one of my favorites. We did this interview just a few weeks ago, and I'm talking about Michael Pollan's book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. It's, it's the last in his series of books, which I've always enjoyed. I love his work. And this book was such a great exploration of the ways various cultures around the world have depended on compounds found in plants, have mind-altering properties, including caffeine and peyote. Uh, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if any of uh, either one of you have read that book and have a comment about it.
3: Yeah, I have read this book. Um, it's great. It's you can't go wrong with a Michael Pollan book. I mean, it's you know Right. I agree.
0: What I liked is that uh, he started out his career in writing books. He started writing about plants that you eat and the nu- the nutrition of it. You know. And now he has switched to not only do the plants affect your body by health, but they affect your mind.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's a very natural, you know, a very natural transition. Like he talks in the book a little bit about how it's, you know, his interest kind of came from gardening. And like you said, plants that we eat and then kind of moved into this different different arena. One thing I was surprised about, though, um, I, I don't think that he talks much about uh, marijuana or cannabinoids. That's and That's a big area of of interest right now. Um, maybe he's got something else in the works for that. But but this book itself is really good.
0: Well, you know, I remember, and I mentioned this in the, in the interview when we did it, the 20 years ago, when he was first on our show, he talked about growing a marijuana plant secretly in his backyard.
3: Ah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I, I suspect that we'll probably hear more on that subject than from him in the future.
0: Once again, that book is This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. Stephanie, you had a book about plants on your list too, but in this case, it was about trees.
2: It was, yes, Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Samard. And I really like this book because she talks about her family. She's from a family of loggers, so she has a lot of photographs of her family throughout the years. And in this aspect, she's trying to find the mysteries of the forest and how we should be concerned for them, especially in the wake of climate change. With um, also like beetle infestations. So, for me, I really liked it because you get more an aspect into like the personality of trees, like Douglas fir, spruce, and birch, and how they kind of talk to each other and communicate with each other. And also the animals that make them, you know, have a home in these trees. So, woodpeckers, like birds, especially. So, this is also a perfect book for bird lovers. Mm-hmm. So, I really like it from that aspect as well.
0: And the name of the book was?
2: Finding a Mother Tree.
0: By Suzanne Simard. Simard. Yes. What what is a mother tree? I mean, what does that mean, finding the mother tree?
2: Yeah. So she talks about how the mother tree is one of the trees that when, you know, that's older and when it's dying, it's kind of passing on its nutrients to these younger trees to help them grow. It's kind of like a circle of life aspect, which I really liked in that aspect as well, because you don't really think about that, but it is like a really, you know, a tree family of sorts, which is really fascinating to learn about.
0: That is cool. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, even in even deeper histories, uh, you have a book about human evolution Valerie, that's your pick. This is a book that contends that we have what been wrong about some fundamental assumptions about how human civilizations developed.
3: Yeah, so this is this is so great. So the book is called The Dawn of Everything: A New History of Humanity and it's um written it's co-written by two authors so the late anthropologist and activist David Graeber and archaeologist David Wingrow. and and like you said yeah it's kind of encouraging readers to take everything they think they know about ancient societies and kind of throw it out the window so we have this idea that you know we all kind of evolved from these primitive bands of egalitarian hunter gatherers and they just kind of reacted to things that happened to them and that's how kind of human history unfolded but this book looks, you know, back at the historical documents that we have, incorporates some new and emerging archaeological data and kind of shows that ancient people actually had a great deal of intelligence and a great deal of agency in how things played out. So it's not just a case where things were kind of happening to them and, you know, like that's how things played out. It's like they made decisions and there was a lot of a lot more complexity to it than we have initially thought. And I think this is really interesting because it's it's provocative. It kind of goes against some of the ideas that we had about human origins, um, and I think it's, it's going to stimulate a lot of new
0: research. You know, that's really interesting that you picked that book, The Dawn of Everything, because my pick, I was about to bring that up, one of my favorite books is called Four Lost Cities by Annalee Newitz, and it talks exactly about these kinds of uh, mythologies that we have. It, it, it's a deep dive into why ancient cities may have been abandoned. And you truly get to see places like Cahokia near St. Louis and Anger Watt. And it it uh, it sort of talks about, hey, you know, these cities were not just abandoned. This was thoughtfully done the way these people left the cities.
3: Yeah, and I think um, something that both of these books do that's, that's really nice and that hasn't always traditionally been done is they kind of bring in voices and perspectives from um, indigenous groups that have a stake in the story. Um, And that's something that I think is really valuable in both cases.
0: Stephanie, have you read this book? No, I want to read that
2: because it kind of does tie into one of the books that I'm going to talk about later, Islands of Abandonment. And so I really want to read Four Lost Cities because that really is something, a subject I'm I'm thinking about a lot and looking forward to reading more about.
0: Yeah, well, go ahead and talk about that book now.
2: Okay, yeah. we're going to talk about it a little bit later. but So Islands of Abandonment by Cal Flynn. And this one was really fascinating to me because- She's talking about how nature has kind of taken its course in places where humans have either abandoned it because of economic disaster or because of natural disaster or because of war. So she talks about Chernobyl, of all places, where, you know, it has been abandoned. But also there's some really interesting diversity, biodiversity happening in the area. Um, She also visits the Marshall Islands, where there's an abandoned military base, where this underwater ecosystem is just blossoming. So for me, this is really interesting because these are places where you don't always think about them on a regular basis, but they are seeing this new or vitalized life. And to me, that's just really fascinating to read about. And I think this is a really great read also because it touches on so many different aspects. So it is history. It's a natural history, but also like sociology. So this kind of spans a lot of different genres and people can kind of take it and kind of get a lot out of it from that reason alone as well.
0: Cool. That sounds very interesting. And just to repeat the book for people who just pulled out their pencil.
2: Yes. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's Islands of Abandonment by Cal Flynn.
0: That's that's really cool. Uh, Valerie, we've been hearing all fall and winter about supply chain woes, thanks to, to the pandemic and the other disruptions. And this is affecting book availability too, isn't it?
3: You know, it's funny. I think, yes, it definitely is affecting book availability. But I, I feel like from my perspective, like, I'm i am not the one that has to deal with it necessarily. Like, the, the, the poor, you know, people at the presses are the ones that are really scrambling. And, you know, I just get these announcements every once in a while that's like, this this date has been pushed back by a month or so. Or, you know, like, so it's it's less of an issue for me. Um,
0: are, are the... Are the books being pushed back because they won't be available in bookstores, or are the publishers saying the, wow, this is just not a good time to release the book?
3: Gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure what the ratio of that is. I'm sure that it's a little bit of both. And I think that um, sometimes, you know, they'll explicitly say, like, this is, you know, we don't have the printing capacity right now. Um, so, it, but yeah, I'm sure it's a little bit of
0: both things. But of course, a lot of books are coming out on PDF, right? Or e-books, could they not yeah. people get download those or some people just don't like to read them that way?
3: Yeah, that's kind of how I prefer to read books. You know, when I'm reading for pleasure, I guess if I'm reading to review, I, I like to have a hard copy in hand just so I can make little notes and stuff. But I think that's just a personal
2: preference.
0: Stephanie, do you, do you mind reading books on eBooks? Yeah, I really
2: love the print book. Actually. I also really love audiobooks lately. So for me, it's like a good way to listen and engage with something while I'm just, you know, kind of taking the material in a different aspect. So, yeah, I really, I, I don't know, PDFs, like I'm kind of getting tired of looking at my screen all day. So I do need the print book, like, you know, a lot of the times, but I do like audio as well as a nice change of pace.
0: Yeah, that's
3: what
2: I'm hearing a lot from um, from reviewers, too. When I send out books for review,
3: they're like, please, whatever you do, like if you can send a print copy, like I can't yes. look at my computer screen
2: anymore. I can relate to that so much.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I have I have the opposite problem because I review a lot of books I'm very happy to get the e-version e of it because I can note, I can make notes on the page in my iPad as I put them on there.
2: Okay, that
3: is a good point. It's nice as an editor too, like when you're working on a book review to be like, oh, this passage that the person is writing about, like if I just had a print copy of the book, I'd have to flip through the whole book looking for it and I can just kind of search it in a PDF. So yeah. that makes it a little easier from my
0: perspective. Yeah. Let, Stephanie and Valerie, let's go back to one of your shared picks and that is fuzz by mary roach i love mary roach and her one word book title what's this one about valerie you want to start off
3: sure yeah so i'm a i'm a huge fan of mary roach too and her her latest book fuzz um, when nature breaks the law has kind of all the elements that you probably like and I like about her writing, which is these, you know, immersive firsthand investigations and interviews with eccentric experts. Um, but this one kind of centers on human wildlife conflict. So she's looking at the quote-unquote crimes committed against humans by animals and, and plants so she starts by looking at felonies so deaths caused by bears and elephants and poisonous plants and falling trees and then she moves on to the lesser offenses so things like birds interfering with airplanes and monkeys that harass city dwellers and deers that are colliding with cars things like that
0: she really has a way of finding offbeat stuff doesn't she
3: yeah yeah that's a such a fun thing
2: about this book,
0: Stephanie. You too.
2: Yeah, that's why I loved it too. Because these are things I didn't think about, like the birds interfering with airplanes. I was like, wait, that actually is something—a serious subject, but we don't think about it that often. So that was really fun to read about.
0: Yeah, she she finds fun things to read from from poop to the military to other kinds of right. things. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it's a fun book. I, I mean, she talks about all these kind of interventions that we're kind of trying to do. So like making bear proof dumpsters and these remote control robotic predator birds that are designed to scare away nuisance birds. And there's even this kind of really interesting chapter on like uh, the people that are doing research on humane extermination methods for problem species. Um, So it's, it kind of, it's, it's pretty wide ranging.
0: Yeah. And uh, just again, that's Fuzz by the incomparable Mary Roach, who is fearless, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she is. I I would have to describe that she's not afraid to to say what to write what she says and how she feels and we all find it very, very interesting when she does that.
3: Yeah, I would say that my only like small criticism was that she kind of misses a chance to discuss the larger problem, which is that these kind of so-called offenses that wildlife are committing aren't exactly unprovoked. I mean, they're happening because we're doing things like encroaching on habitats and destroying traditional food sources and introducing invasive species. So we have to take a little bit of the blame there for that one.
2: Stephanie, you agree? agree? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. A lot of, you know, the instances like we are encroaching on their natural habitat, especially for military bases or just places where like, you know, we probably shouldn't belong. So, yeah, no, I agree with you in that aspect, Valerie.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, we're talking about the best science books of 2021 with Stephanie Sandala and Valerie Thompson. I'm going to toss my own favorite book in here, and that's The Joy of Sweat by Sarah Everts. It was such a fun book about the science of perspiration. I mean, who knew? Well, you know, it covers everything, why we do it, how sweating can go wrong. And, and Sarah looked at everything from whether sports drinks are actually useful, maybe not, and how museums that displayed historical clothing have to deal with the destructive nature of sweat to fabric. Who knew? Who thought about that kind of stuff? And that's why, I guess, that's why Sarah wrote the book. And then that, it even includes the original Apollo spacesuits. We talked to her in July, of course, at the height of summer sweating season, but it really was a very fun book.
3: I was going to ask if this if this came out of some sort of personal, uh, you know, lockdown new commitment to to working out or something. <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> yeah, but but on the other hand, there are people who like to sweat, and we were talking about that too. People who go to the saunas and they they go to hot yoga.
2: Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to read that one for that reason because you know I have like tried hot yoga, and it's a little bit too much sweating for me to be honest. So I am really interested in reading about like the science of why we sweat and people like
0: to sweat. Sarah also said that she's really an intense sweater and she wants to know why. And she got some answers about why she is such an intense sw- sweater. And I don't mean the thing made out of wool, um, at, but I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who wants to read the book because it, it it's a lot of fun. Um,
3: yeah, now I'm curious. Yeah, yeah I am too.
0: And, and it's called again, The Joy of Sweat by Sarah Everts. Um, Stephanie, you have another one on your list that we covered on the show this year, The Sounds of the Sea by Cynthia Barnett, all about seashells, our relationship with them through history and what the future holds for them in acidifying oceans. What struck you most about this book?
2: Yeah, this is probably one of my favorite books of this year, um, I think, just because she talks about how we know so much about seashells, the outside of them, but we don't really know that much about the animals that live inside of them. And also, I really like the part about how seashells throughout history have been used as like money and weapons and gifts and even art, like the whole seashell craze of the post-war period. So you're thinking about seashells and all these different types of periods of history and how they've each changed, but also kind of people who collect them, which, you know, I love seashells as a kid. And you're just thinking about, oh, right, like these have such a varied history and how they're kind of adapting in the face of climate change as well.
0: Yeah, it was very, it was fascinating.
2: It really was. What do you like about it, Ira?
0: I think one of my favorite things that I learned was that shell oil was started by a family yeah. that originally made their living selling seashells. Yeah, I had that no idea. It's crazy.
3: <laughs> I would have never made that connection.
0: Yeah, a little bit too on the nose, given the connection between fossil fuels and climate change, and now <laughs> we're talking about something naturally occurring in nature. Right. And just to repeat for your pencil, yes. The Sounds of the Sea by Cynthia Barnett was the name we have to take a quick break when we come back more science book recommendations for your next trip to the library or gift card spending spree so there's a ton of
3: you know raw isn't science amazing books out there and and we've talked about some of them but we also owe it to ourselves to confront the parts that aren't working and this this but does a little bit of both
0: stay with us hey there folks ira here I'm counting down the minutes to 2022 and reminding you that it's your last chance to make a donation for 2021. We still have that dollar-for-dollar dollar donation match in effect. So take advantage and make your gift before midnight tonight. Go to sciencefriday.com support to make a difference now. Thanks, and wishing you a happy and science-filled New Year. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. We're talking about the best science books of 2021 with guest book nerds Valerie Thompson of Science Magazine and Stephanie Sendala of Library Journal. Stephanie, you had another book about the oceans on your list, and, and this time I'm talking about the very deep sea. The book is called yes. The Brilliant Abyss. What's, what's in this one?
2: Yeah, so this is a Blind Abyss by Helen Scales. And this is a great companion to The Sound of the Sea. Um, This one is about the deep sea and kind of what we don't know about it, because we don't know that much about it. But I really like how she brings us aspects of the deep sea that we should be thinking about, like conservationists who are concerned for the future of it because of the impact of deep sea mining and fishing and also pollution affecting the deep sea. But it's really great how she talks about the people who make a living studying the deep sea, like deep sea biologists who are learning more about it and bringing us interesting facts about it. And also these really unique ecosystems underwater that, you know, host like squid and jellyfish and like, even like all these different types of worms as well. So there's so much about the deep sea, like these underwater volcanoes and mountain ranges that we just, you know, don't have always have um, access to, but they are really fascinating and are blossoming. Because, you know, they're, they're just these vibrant, vibrant um, aspects of ecosystems. So that's really great as well. So, yeah, this is a yeah a great companion.
0: And because we, we learned so much about how um, life can live in such hostile environments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that maybe this kind of environments are on other planets. And we have to think about where we look for life on other places and how resilient life may be.
2: Yeah, I think resilience is a great um, part of it because you're thinking about how do these animals live in these like deep, dark environments that really are so hostile. What is so again? This is the yeah, the Brilliant Abyss by Helen Scales, another like really great book that would be um, a really nice companion to the Sound of the Sea.
0: Uh, yeah, it is a great book. I love I love the oceans. I love the trivia that there is about the oceans. For example, all the sand that's at the yes. bottom of the oceans made from living things.
2: Yeah, I had no idea about any of that either.
0: Yeah, it's just fascinating. Most probably, most of the sand on on the Earth that we never get to see is at the bottom of the ocean from single celled animals that died and left their little shells behind. Yeah, uh, Stephanie, have you noticed any common themes in your favorite books this year?
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the common themes, sadly, is like a lot of pollution in the ocean and how we should be kind of really concerned for the future of it and what we can do to help. Um, so also just like you know climate change is having a big impact which we already know but yeah but pollution is really you know something that we should be aware of and you know making an effort to try to combat if we can
0: have we have we has covid possibly been an influence for these books or or were these all started before there was covid so there really is not a common theme about covid or climate change perhaps
3: I feel like for me like a, a lot of books recently um it's yes like it's like you said many of the books that we're talking about now were kind of started maybe before covid or kind of conceived of at least before covid and so there's there's not a lot of ties although they're often in the introduction um, which is written kind of the last part of the book that's written there'll be a mention of it um, and kind of a tie to that but I think um, one of the themes that I was thinking about that connects kind of all the all the books that I'm talking about today is this idea of questioning assumptions. So questioning assumptions about human nature or about the practice of science or, you know, about our effects on the earth and, uh, you know, things like about what well-communicated science looks like and sounds like.
0: And, you know, that's an interesting point that you make because that's basically the basis of science, of what science is, is questioning our assumptions about things that we take for granted.
3: Yeah, I think good science, that's exactly what it does.
0: Speaking of questioning assumptions, then, Valerie, you had a very timely book for us, Immune, by Philip Detmer.
3: Yes. So this book is great. Um, I don't know if if you've been online recently, but there's been a real uptick in uh, armchair immunologists over the past uh, 18 months or so. So this um, this book is very timely. It's, um, the immune system is very complicated, so I'm, I'm not trying to imply that we don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about T cells and herd immunity and things, but I think we could all benefit from a little immunology primer. So, this book, um, Philip Detmer's uh, Immune, is great for that. Um, if you don't know, Detmer runs a super popular um, science YouTube channel called Kurzgesagt, which is um, German for in a nutshell. And um, just like Kazat, immune is filled with these very colorful illustrations that explain what the different cells of the immune system do and how they work. It kind of covers T cells, B cells, macrophages, neutrophils, you know, how vaccines work, autoimmune disease. There's even a, a short chapter on COVID. Um, wow. So it, it's, it's great for that. Do yeah. You, do
0: you need to know biology, uh, you know, studying it, or do, is it so basic that you learn everything?
3: No, I think that's like some that's a real attribute of this book. It's it's very playful, it's very irreverent. There's kind of you know, he talks about receptors being like the noses of your cells and he compares different categories of T cells to character classes in Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some hardcore immunologists who are like, this isn't, you know, this isn't exactly how it works, but I, I think it's great because he he gets the science right and he does so well, kind of keeping things light and conversational, which is really hard for a topic this complex.
0: Yeah, we could all use a book like this. <laughs> about yeah, right I think now. so. And it makes, you know, it makes the immune system understandable. And then it's a big year for vaccination, plus all the talk about COVID-19 variants, whether the immune system will recognize them as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick that book up because you can't read too much about it, can you?
3: Right, right. And this is kind of like, you know, like I'm a biologist by training, but like I'm like the the immune system is really hard to understand. So I think it's like we could, you know, a lot of us could benefit from something like this.
0: And it's called Immune by Philip Detmer, D-E-T-T-M-E-R, correct? That's right. You know, I love this. And another book that fits right into this now is a book about Dr. Fauci as a kid. It's a kid's book. It's called Dr. Fauci. How a Boy from Brooklyn Became America's Doctor, and the book is by author Kate Mesner. And it's a really delightful read about Anthony Fauci's childhood, how he got interested in science, started his career in medicine, eventually went on to NIH. And you know, his parents were pharmacists, and he'd go around Brooklyn delivering prescriptions on his bicycle. Did did anybody know that?
3: I had no idea. Is that what was that his like impetus for getting interested in science? So that's what it was.
0: Well, his I guess he grew up with his parents sort of being scientists, as they were as they were pharmacists or they're medical people, but it also talks about how uh, he knew he was uh, curious about everything, and his curiosity I think is what led him into his medical career, and he's very good at listening to other people, and he always questioned assumptions, and he had this very stick-to-itiveness, you know, he was not going to give up when he didn't find the answer to what he wanted to know. And it's a really cute book.
3: That sounds great. It sounds like lessons too that are really great for children to hear, you know, about being tenacious and like being curious and things like that. So that that sounds nice.
0: Stephanie? Stephanie, have you read this?
2: Yeah, I haven't read that one, but I'm looking forward to it. I had no idea about his family background either, so it looks like a great pick.
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a great kid's book. Um, I, and let me repeat it's It's called Dr. Fauci, How a Boy from Brooklyn Became America's Doctor by Kate Mesmer. Speaking, Stephanie, about the, the times we live in, you both, you and Valerie, both picked Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky as one of yours, all about the ways we've tried to fix our own footprint on the environment. We spoke with uh, Elizabeth when this book came out. Stephanie, why did you pick this one?
2: Yeah, I think I picked it first because her writing is always so accessible. Um, I think that's why I loved like the Sixth Extinction as well. Um, just because it's a great book that you can just get into just without any background in science, and this one is the same as well. Um, she just kind of draws you into the subject, and you're just like you're not overwhelmed with facts or anything. You just learn so much about it, and she just like really talks about how it's not like shaming or guilt or anything, just explaining you know what our impact is on the environment and what we can do to make changes to fix it. So what do you think?
0: Yeah, Valerie. Yeah. Yeah. Valerie, what's your opinion on it?
3: Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I mean, it, it was like kind of interesting. Like she dives deep into these like specific subjects. So she'll talk about, you know, everything from like controlling inv- invasive species that we've in- introduced to certain habitats without realizing, you know, the destruction they were going to cause to engineering coral that can survive in warmer waters to trying to save coastal lands that have been deprived of sediments and kind of undermined by oil and gas drilling. And it's, it's really interesting because I feel like she has, you know, there's this tension throughout the book of like, are we going to be able to engineer our way out of a problem that like we engineered our way into? Um, right. But, you yeah. know, it's like, it's like we kind of don't have a choice is, is the bottom line of the book. We kind of have to do something, but doing nothing is no longer an option.
0: Well, was it a hopeful book then that we could change what we're doing or possibly engineer some ways around it?
3: Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Stephanie? I, I didn't feel super
2: hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought it was hopeful because it is like, like Valerie said, like we have to take action. Like we don't have a choice. So in that aspect for me, I did find it hopeful, Because, you know, this is what we have to do in order to make it better.
0: Yeah,
3: I guess it did instill like I I mean, I don't know if I left feeling hopeful, but I did feel like very proud of like what science has accomplished. You know, like it's the people that are that are coming up with these measures, these, you know, sometimes very extreme measures to try to undo some of the damage we've done to the earth. I I think it is really in that regard. It is a really um, gives you a lot of hope in in what we can do and we'll be able to do in the future.
0: And uh, I'm glad we we're ending with my last pick, which sort of fits into this last one that you mentioned. It's a disasterology by emergency management researcher, Samantha Montano. It's not exactly uplifting. <laughs> 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 talk- they
3: can't all be uplifting, all right. No,
0: no we, we try. You know. she, talked to, she talks a lot about the science of disasters and it is a science, she, she mentions, and how reassuring and she details how her field can better respond to a future where we'll definitely see more extreme weather, absolutely colliding with the human habitation. So I, I thought it was really interesting. I, mean, I never knew there was a word called disasterology, and you could be a disasterologist. But
3: so, is there like a is there like a pathway for like how how are we going to deal with these things, or is she just kind of laying out the problem and?
0: She's, she's laying it out. And one interesting point that she makes, and uh, I, I thought about this, is that she never uses, doesn't want us to use the phrase natural disaster ever again. Oh, interesting. Did she say why? Well, yeah, because if there no, let's say there are no people on Earth and what's, there is no disaster. A disaster only happens when, when it's human made, people happen, you know, living where they shouldn't be living or climate change changes the environment. So a disaster has to be connected with extreme weather where people are living, a flood or, you know, if you if you weren't there, the the river would just flood and nothing would happen.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah, thanks. I need to read that one as well.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, we're talking about the best science books of 2021 with Stephanie Sandala and Valerie Thompson. Valerie, one last book from you, and it's not at all least. It's a book about the field of cosmology and one black woman's journey to join it. Tell us about that. Sure. So this
3: book is called The Disordered Cosmos. This is by um, physicist Chanda Prescott Weinstein. Um, so there's, you know, a ton of, you know, rah-rah isn't science amazing books out there. And, and we've talked about some of them, but we also kind of owe it to ourselves to confront the parts that aren't working. And this this book does a little bit of both. So it it's... Um, begins with this kind of whirlwind tour of the standard model of particle physics and general relativity and cosmology. Um, but that's just kind of the first four chapters. So from here, she kind of goes into this examination of the intersections of physics and race. So both in terms of the actual physics associated with melanin, which is the pigment in skin that determines how dark our skin is. And then in terms of the barriers that are faced by people of color who choose to pursue a career in physics, and then more generally kind of, you know, who gets to decide what we call science.
2: Yeah, no, that's what I liked about it too. um, Just because like as a black woman, I didn't really know you know that much about like how black women in physics, like the barriers they face. So I know there is racism in STEM fields, but I just didn't know the you know pervasiveness of it. I like how she just explains that we need to do better, and she explains her personal um, story and what the issues that she's faced throughout her career. And this is a really great read, also because she makes it really accessible, so anyone can just jump in. And you know, it's a good read for people who don't know that much about science, but are looking for a good place to start.
3: Yeah. And I think it's nice, too, because like I said, like her love for the field is there. Yes. I mean, she doesn't sugarcoat her critiques of the state of modern physics, but it's, you know, you can hear her passion for physics in there. And so it, it's kind of a nice blending of the two.
0: Yeah, I agree. Cool. Cool. Cool book to leave. A very, very timely read right now. Uh, leaving 2021, learning some cool new things, but also thinking hard about how the scientific enterprise itself has to do better. That book, The Disordered Cosmos by Dr. Shonda Prescott Weinstein. One last question for you both uh, before we go. Can we get ahead of ourselves a little bit? Are there any new books you've got sitting on your desk waiting to read and and looking forward to in 2022? So
3: for me, uh, on my list, there's a new book coming out in March uh, by Maya Weinstock. And this is a book called Carbon Queen, and it's a biography of Mildred Dresselhaus, who was kind of a pioneer in nanoscience, which is, you know, this is a person and a field that I don't know very much about. Um, so I'm really looking forward to reading that one.
0: Great pick. We also uh, interviewed Mildred years, years ago on Science Friday. So if you want to go look that up on our website, you can find that interview. Yeah, she was iconic in her field.
3: Yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't wait to listen to that interview.
2: And I can jump in too. So I'm looking forward to The Tree Line by Ben Rollins, which is coming out in January, so very soon. And he talks about the shifting tree line that's happening in the northern regions of the world. So Canada, Siberia, Greenland, and Alaska, and kind of like, you know, the issues that animals in the region like reindeer are facing as the trees kind of shift, you know, in the wake of climate change. So this isn't an optimistic book per se, but it is an important one.
0: Well, I'm glad we have rounded up all these books and the important ones. And I want to thank you both and for taking time to be with us today and wishing you a happy holiday.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ira. It's been great to be here
3: again. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks so much.
0: You're welcome. Stephanie Sandala, Associate Editor with Library Journal. Valerie Thompson, Senior Editor covering books at Science Magazine. And of course, if you, you weren't fast enough with your pencil, you can check out our full list of books on our website, sciencefridaycom slash books. And that's about all the time we have for now. Here's Nahima Ahmed with some of the great folks who helped make this show possible.
2: Thanks, Ira. Diana Montano is our outreach manager. Jennifer Fennec is our director of institutional giving. Ariel Zich is our education director. Beth Rami is
0: our controller. And I'm Nahima Ahmed, manager of Impact Strategy. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Nahima. BJ Lederman composed our theme music, and of course, if you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcast. And on the sci fry Vox Pop app, tell us your favorite sighting this winter, birding season. Yes, whether you did the Christmas bird count or you're just watching the feeder in your backyard, what birds are you excited about? That's on the sci fry Vox Pop app, wherever you get your apps. Have a happy new year. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.